Have you ever found yourself in a conversation where you're talking about something and it might be uh, some tense moments going on and you're talking about something up here, but then you know that the thing that you really need to be talking about is down here, but no one's willing to go there because it's too scary? Do you guys know about this? And um, Quincy and I often joke about what's going on in that dynamic and we call it the thing under the thing. So what I'm interested in doing this morning is kind of getting to the thing under the thing when we talk about money. Because money can be an uncomfortable conversation. It, and it strikes me as odd that it's uncomfortable, especially when we talk about it in just about every aspect of life. But then we get into the church and all of a sudden we clam up and we don't want to talk about it. So I want to talk about it in a way that I think will be encouraging to you, will invite you to look at the thing going on under the thing. And the master of the one that could really unpack what was going on underneath all things is Jesus. And Jesus has this statement in the Gospel of Matthew where he says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as you hear that statement, treasure and heart, what Jesus seems to be interested in is getting to the thing under the thing, like getting to the heart motivation center of the human experience. Like what's really going on behind the ways that we view money and we talk about money. And as I've been thinking about money, I said one of the ways that I think we can really begin to identify where our heart is attached to money or our heart is attached to how we spend our time and our resources is if you look at how you spend your time, you spend your resources, your energy, where your attention and your money flow most effortlessly has a lot to say about where your heart is attached. So if we were to follow your spending habits, my spending habits, where my time and attention just goes so naturally and at ease, it reveals a lot about what's going on in my human experience and in my heart. And it has a way of, of getting to the root of things about the things that I'm attached to or if I'm finding a sense of significance and my, my identity is somehow wrapped up in how I spend my time and how I use the resources that God has given me. So I want to unpack that with us this morning. And we're going to be spending our time in a particular text, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you want to look at uh, your Bible app on your phone, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to situate ourselves in verses 1 through 9. And we're going to move through it slowly and carefully and see what's really going on and what Paul is getting after in this particular portion of his letter. But before we jump into the letter, I wanna give us a little bit of, of background to help you better understand what's going on so that we can get a better glimpse of what Paul is actually getting at in this particular portion of his letter. So when we think about the movement of Christianity, Christianity began in Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, it begins to spread throughout the Greek and the Roman world, and it spreads rapidly because that's the nature of the good news of Jesus Christ. It doesn't just stay stagnant. It's always spreading and moving. And a few decades after the movement of Christianity began, the region of Jerusalem and Judea fall into a great famine. And so these Jewish Christians who are living in Jerusalem enter into extreme poverty. They don't have the resources, the means to meet their own physical Needs And so Paul, because he's well connected with the story in Jerusalem and he's moving throughout different regions of the Greek and the Roman world, has all of these networks of people that he's interacting with. And so Paul sends out and he, and he moves into a fundraising tour. 
And one of the areas that Paul goes into is a city called Corinth. Now, Corinth is loaded with money. They've got resources. They've got abundance. And so Paul puts the two together, okay? We've got the Christians in Jerusalem, and we've got a community of Jesus followers in Corinth who have, and these people don't. Let's connect the dots and bring them together. So Paul enters out on this fundraising tour into Ephesus, Galatia, Colossae, Corinth, up in Thessalonica, and he begins to spread the news about these Christians who are struggling in Jerusalem. And the church in Corinth, these Jesus followers in Corinth, hear the story, they're compelled by the story, and they say, we're in, we're all in. So Paul ends his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, so you got First and Second Corinthians, he ends it. All of these Christians are in on the story, like we want to give to the people back in Jerusalem. So one of the things that Paul does is as he's moving throughout these different regions and churches that he helped to start, is he's going to gather one key leader from each of these, each of these groups, and then they're all going to go back together to Jerusalem to deliver the gift that's been gathered by all of these other people throughout these particular regions. So the church in Corinth, who again... They have abundance, they have much. As the story progresses, they get lazy, as often we do, right, as human beings. They get lazy, they grow in indifference, they forget to do the collection that they committed to. And so what does Paul do? He writes letter number two. And as he writes this letter, he's reminding them of some significant things, commitments that they've made, but also some significant things of who they are. And he tells them story after story, reminding them of what they're situating in and what they're participating in. So you've got all these key leaders. You've got Paul gathering up money from all these different regions, and they're on their way to Corinth. Now imagine you're the church in Corinth, and Paul and all these key leaders are coming to your town to collect. And they're going to stand before your community and say, okay, all of these folks, they're participating. They are helping. They've held up their end of the agreement that they entered into, and the church in Corinth has nothing at this point. Now, you can feel the tension in that, can't you? As Paul, big mighty Paul, is standing in front of them, and all these people are standing in front of them. So we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to move to this together, but that's the setting, and I think it's helpful for us to know what's going on in the story. So let's jump in. Verse 1 at the beginning of the story. Now notice, as we read the text together, notice the things that Paul says, but I also want to draw your attention to the things that Paul doesn't say, because I think it's really interesting. And when we talk about getting to the thing under the thing, this is what we're doing. So let's read. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. Let's stop there for a moment. So in order to capture someone's heart, to capture someone's attention, what is the best way to do that? Telling a story. So Paul says, instead of coming down heavy on them, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell them a story. And he starts to talk about this group of Jesus followers up in the region of Macedonia, the Macedonian Christians. And these Macedonian Christians actually had two letters written to them from Paul. They're called Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So Macedonia, the, the region where they're at, is about 200 miles north of Corinth. They're situated up here. And Paul begins by telling a story about the Macedonians' Christians. And what does he say in the text? He says, I'm here to tell you about the grace of God that happened 
to these people living up in this region. So he tells them about the grace of God. So something happened to this community of people in this particular region. And the thing that happened to them is grace. And Paul talks about grace all throughout this portion of the letter. And he uses different metaphors, but he's inviting them into a deeper story and he's reminding them of the grace of God. And he's telling them that something of significance happened to these particular people in Macedonia, and that's called the grace of God. Now, when we think about the grace of God and we think about, well, how do you describe it? Grace can be translated as gift. It can be translated as privilege. It can be translated as generosity. There's all this vast understanding of the word grace. Now, if I invite you over for dinner and now you feel obligated to invite me over for dinner, that is not grace. If I buy you a birthday gift, now you're obligated to buy me a birthday gift. That is not grace. What do we call that? Obligation, transaction. And that's so much of how we experience human relationship is through this kind of transactional approach, but that's not grace. Grace is no strings attached. Gift, I give you this gift without the expectation of anything in return. I'm simply giving you a gift out of my resources because you lack these particular resources. So I'm giving you this gift. It's costing me something, but it's for your good and for your benefit. That is grace. No strings attached. He goes on in the letter after talking about grace happening. And listen to what he says in verse 2 through 5. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy. Notice all of these words jumping out. And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this, not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. Now backing up for a moment, how is Paul describing these Macedonian Christians? What are they experiencing? Extreme poverty. They lack resources. And then he goes on to say, and they're begging, they're like earnestly begging us to participate in the generosity of these Christians in Jerusalem. So they're like, hey, we'll move the furniture. We'll look behind the dresser. We'll get down into the gutters. We want to find anything we can to get in on this gig of generosity. So grace happened to them, but something deep happened to them to the point where the only way they know how to respond is by radical generosity. They're experiencing extreme poverty, and yet in their extreme poverty, they don't allow that to get in the way of radical generosity. And what Paul is doing here is he's uh, adjusting the furniture. He's reframing how we look at generosity and how we look at abundance. And he starts to do some kind of math equation here. And he says, severe hardship plus extreme poverty plus abounding joy equals rich generosity. So typically we think of hardship and poverty as barriers to generosity, but Paul is reversing that and saying, actually, those things are not barriers to generosity. This is more about a condition of the heart. Paul is writing to a community of people who have great 
abundance. They've got resources. They've got money. They've got extra. And instead of coming down on them heavy and manipulating them and twisting them like he could do, Paul simply appeals to the human heart. And he reminds them of who they already are. And what Paul is doing is he's telling us a story and he's saying, listen, you can have money, but run the risk of being very poor and you can have very little money and open up to the possibility of having abundant joy and being rich. Paul is redefining the gospel in light of rich and poor. He's flipping the script. He's turning it upside down because we have these typical ways of looking at our abundance and how we look at money and saying, listen, having money and having joy are two totally different things. And having the ability and having money to give and be generous are two very different things going on here. Paul is doing these math equations to open us up to the possibility that there might be something else going on here. And if we get to the thing under the thing, having money and having joy are two totally different things. Sometimes what we do is we link the two together and Paul is saying that's not how the human heart works. Now, if I go through my life and I'm cultivating this mindset of scarcity, that there's never enough, that I'm not quite sure if I'm gonna have enough, and I begin to cultivate that mindset of scarcity, that links me to the inability to trust God with my life and the outcome of my life. So I might say I'm having a difficult time trusting God with these things because if I give this away, is God gonna come through for me? Is God going to meet my needs? And so we run the risk of being poor if we give ourselves into that scarcity mindset. But what Paul is inviting us into is he's inviting us into the mindset of abundance, that there's always enough, that God can be trusted, that there's always gonna be enough at the end no matter what. That's that mindset of abundance that Paul invites us into, trusting that God is always out for our best interest, that he can absolutely be trusted. And when we cultivate that mindset of abundance, money just becomes money. It no longer has the hold on the human heart and our decisions and how we spend our time and our resources. It loses its grip. And these Macedonians hear about the need, and what is their response? We got to turn everything over just to find ways to help these people in Jerusalem because they're in need. And we could easily look at the Macedonians and go, well, they're in need as well, but they're doing everything they can because the grace of God has so flipped their heart upside down that their only response is, how can we not give? We simply must participate in what God is doing at this human level. So they jump in. The mindset begins to get cultivated. And what I'm asking us to consider this morning is that the giving of your money and your resources is for the sake of your joy. Because what if what Paul is saying is actually true? What if it's true? See, for the Macedonians Christians, they've gotten such a firm hold on the grace of God, and the grace of God has gotten such a firm hold on their human hearts that they, they refuse to let their finances determine the outcome of their joy. Their joy is rooted and situated in something deeper, which then raises a question for us. 
is what is the bedrock of your self-worth? To ask yourself that question, like what's, what's going on kind of at the base of it, the thing under the thing, what is the bedrock of my self-worth living in this world? Is it the grace of God? Is it the reality that the Son of God chose me, that he loves me, regardless of where I've been or what I'm up to, that this God so loved me that he gave himself for me freely, that the one in the universe that matters the most chooses me, loves me, pours out his adoration upon my heart, or is it something else? Is there something else at the bedrock of the human heart? Because somehow, when the human heart experiences the grace of God, when it experiences the generous love of God, the only reaction to that is it explodes with generosity. It's like, how can I not give? And something opens up in the human heart. You think about how this works in our relationship with God and our relationship with Jesus, it works this way in human relationships too. If you've ever been deeply in love with another human being, you know what I'm talking about. You will do everything you can to meet the needs of that person. You will go out of your way to give up anything that you have for the benefit of those people. When our kids come visit us, we have two kids. Whenever they come visit us, it's like Shannon and I can't like empty out our dresser drawers fast enough. Do you guys need new pants? Do you need a new shirt? Do you need this? Do you need this? The only response we can when we get our kids and they come is like, what can we give to them? How can we give them more? How can we bless them? And so you think that even on a human level, when your heart has been captured by the infinite love of another, it's like, I will do everything I can. I will move heaven and earth in order to bless and give to this person. And what Paul is saying is, this is what happened to the Macedonians, Christians. The grace of God got such a firm hold on their heart that their only response is, how can we give? How can we get in on what God is doing in the world? How can we not give? How can we afford not to give? Then it goes on in verse 6. And Paul says, so that we might urge Titus that as he had already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous undertaking among you. So Titus, keep working. Keep doing this work that you started in the beginning. I'm writing letter number two to you, and I'm inviting you, Titus, to keep working with God's people and excelling in generosity and keep working at this undertaking that you committed yourselves to. I want you to renew your passion. And then Paul says in verse 7, and this really is the hinge of this thing. Look at what he says in verse 7. Now, and he's talking to these Christians in Corinth, now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. What is Paul doing there? He's reminding them, listen, your faith is growing leaps and bounds. It's expanding. There's, there's, a, there's a growth in your faith. There's a growth in your speech how you conduct yourselves with one another. You're growing in the grace of God and the understanding of God. And your knowledge of the scriptures, your knowledge of God's bigger story is expanding and growing. But I want you to know, this area of your life also needs to experience transformation and grow because I want to remind you of who you are. 
You're no different than these Macedonian Christians who have experienced the grace of God and you have the love of God in you. I see it and I'm calling that out. And I don't want you to miss out on the joy of excelling in generosity. This area of your life also needs to grow. And then check out what he says in verse eight. I do not say this as a command. Do you love that? I'm not saying this as a command. How did the church in Corinth begin? Paul started it. Tent making, leather, he bivocational minister, he moves into these regions, he works his craft, but then he tells the story of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ spreads and a church is born in the city of Corinth. Paul has every right to come up and say, listen, remember what, remember what happened last time I was here and what you agreed to? You're not, only a, you're not in, holding up your end of the deal, but instead of doing that, Paul simply reminds them of who they are and he begins to tell them a story and he reminds them about the grace of God. Paul had every right to command and yet he says, I do not say this as a command. And then he tells one more story. And what I wanna do is I actually want you to say this next verse with me. So can everybody say this with me out loud? It's okay, here we go. We're gonna read this together. Ready? Here we go. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, what did we just proclaim together? We just said the gospel in a math metaphor. And right at the center of this metaphor is the cross of Jesus Christ. What we all just said is the good news of Jesus Christ. We entered into that story. Jesus gave up his position of high status as creator of all things and creator of all life. And Jesus, instead of staying up in high status, became poor so that those of us who are experiencing poverty might become rich. That's Paul's way of talking about the beauty of what Jesus does and what Jesus did on our behalf. The God of the universe lowers himself, instead of staying up here, lowers himself, becomes human, and through his death and resurrection, renews us, restores us, and invites us into new life with Christ. And as we look at the story of Jesus, and we look at the condition of our world today, how are we doing with the story of Jesus as a world? We look at ourselves and we think, my gosh, we've got extreme poverty, we've got hoarding, we've got extreme greed. It basically comes down to me, 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 and then me. A lot of me focus going on. And as we look at our world and we seek the well-being of our own tribe and our own people, and essentially it all comes down to what is mine and what belongs to us. And Paul's reminding us of this story. And then for Paul, after he tells the story, it's hands off. And he tells us, hey, let me remind you of something. The God of the universe comes down in the form of Jesus. And instead of writing us off, instead of roasting us, instead of condemning us, God humbles himself, comes down into our human story, enters into our poverty, physically and spiritually, and becomes human. And we see Jesus on the cross, 
absorbing our sin, absorbing our guilt, absorbing our pain, taking it all upon himself in that moment, all the suffering of the world, Jesus absorbs that on the cross, but because of the grace of God, the gift, nothing can hold him back. That's grace. God loves us screwed up people and our screwed up world so much that death itself cannot build a barrier high enough for Jesus to break through and cross over back to life. So God raises Jesus from the dead. He saves humanity. He makes a new way possible for us to enter into a relationship with the living God so that we can experience this new life. And when we give our hearts and our life and our allegiance over to the Lord Jesus, everything changes, even this area where Paul says, yeah, you're excelling in faith, you're excelling in speech and knowledge, but also excel in generosity because that's the the outcome of the human heart. When the human heart is captured by the grace of God, the only response is generosity. Again, getting to the core of what's going on in the human heart. And now we've been given this opportunity to participate in what God is doing in the world and the renewal of all things. We get to be insanely generous to the point where it doesn't make any sense. That's what we get to do as Jesus followers. That's the story that Paul is telling in this portion of the letter. Now, nine years ago, there's a story that started in the city of Louisville. And it was a dream that our pastor Bill and Jim had this dream of planting a new Jesus community in Boulder County. Now, let me ask you a question. Is planting a church in Boulder County a good decision? It's like, it's really not the best plan. It's hard, but God put this dream in Bill and Jim to start a church and people started coming and experiencing the transformation that happens in the Jesus story. Now, the beauty of it is it's no longer just Bill and Jim's dream. There's a lot of us in this room. This is our dream too. And we're part of a church where I think we are doing our best to tell the story of Jesus. And we want to keep telling the story of Jesus. We don't want to stop telling the story of Jesus. And we're doing all that we can to remove unnecessary boundaries and barriers that would keep people from following Jesus. All the religious stuff, all the things that we we put on people. Well, you have to do this if you want to follow Jesus. We're doing everything we can to remove those barriers so that people can enter into this life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our heart's desire. That's the dream. That's why we're here. That's why Ascent exists, to keep telling this compelling story of Jesus Christ who lowers himself, comes down into our story and wants us to experience joy and abundance because of everything that he gave up for our sake. But in order for this thing that we call Ascent to move and to continue telling the story, it takes money. And I'm just gonna say it because I'm the pastor of discipleship and I get one chance at this, right? It takes finances to run this to tell the story, to keep being present here in the city of Louisville. And I think of all the things that this church has done and the ways that we've partnered with the city and the ways that we've blessed the community and the ways that we've desired to respond to the fire and all the things that we have done as a Jesus-following community here in Louisville. Louisville Christians, we get to get in on this gig of God changing and renewing the world around us. 
We get to get in on this and fully participate in the goodness of what Jesus is doing in the world, that he gave himself for us, sacrificed himself for us so that we get to keep telling the story of Jesus. And I know, I know that some of you would say, man, I would love to give more, but I just can't. Can I just remind you of the Macedonian Christians who are flipping over dressers and going down into the heating ducts looking for just that extra to give? That they're like, how can we not give after everything has been given to us because generosity breeds more generosity and we need to be in on this. And maybe that means three less lattes this week. I don't know. Maybe it means instead of going out to eat twice, you go out to eat once this week. It's a reprioritization of, okay, let's really look at things and begin to prioritize things around Jesus and not just around ourselves and around our own tribe. You can find ways. The heart, when it's on fire, it always finds ways to give. Would you agree with that? You can't stop it. When it's on fire, you're like, I can't stop doing this. And then Paul shifts from talking about math and he starts talking about farming because that's what you do when you're trying to use all these metaphors to capture people's attention. And he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, the point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up in your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Now Paul's talking about a farming metaphor and he's using this farming metaphor of broadcasting that when a farmer looks at their wine expansive land, they take as much seed as they can and they just begin to spread it out and let nature do its work. But they're throwing out as much seed as they possibly can. And what Paul says is if you just throw out a little and you throw out a little seed, what you're gonna get in return is just a little. But if you throw out a lot and you expand and you begin to look at your priorities and go, okay, what things can we shift and move? And you begin to throw out in faith because you are perpetuating a mindset of abundance that there's always enough. And so I'm gonna throw out as much as I can. Wait, watch, step back and see what happens. See what happens. Open yourself up to the possibility that this is really where joy leads us to. And Paul says each person, each person, they've got to decide in their own hearts what they want to give. That's between you and Jesus. But you got to go prayerfully and considerately, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. So first and foremost, I think generosity is about priority. It's like reprioritizing ourselves around the ways of Jesus. What is Jesus up to in the world? We don't pass the plate here. I don't know if some of you grew up in church subculture. There was this thing they called offering plates that they would pass by. And I remember watching the plates go by and you always watch what people put in the plates. Cause you're like, well, I saw you driving in your BMW. What's going on with that? And we pass the plates and then all this guilt rises up in you. And you're like, I probably should just toss something in there because I don't want the person next to me to think I'm a schlup. But we don't do that here because we don't believe it's in your best interest. That's why we have boxes in the back or online ways to give because we believe there's something that you predetermine before you walk into this place, what you're gonna give. That's a heart that's looking at itself going, in what ways can I stretch 
and grow and reprioritize my giving. So I'm inviting you to sit down after today, prayerfully go through looking at your time and your resources and where your money is flowing most effortlessly and begin to reprioritize those things because generosity is a response to God's generosity that he's given to us. Secondly, I want us to think about the value of percentage. I think percentages are actually linked to priority and they're actually helpful. And the question that we could ask is what would stretch me beyond what I'm currently throwing out broadcasting, what would stretch me and challenge me to step into another way of giving? And for some of you friends, it might be 2%. And can we just say, thank you, Jesus, for 2%. To have the privilege and the joy of being able to give, and then all of the decisions that we make in the future are centered around that giving. I'm giving 2%. And I'm praying and I'm hoping that that increases in time because I think what Paul is also saying is that our generosity is progressive. It doesn't just stay here. It continues to grow. And this year it might be 2%. Next year it might be 3 because you want to see more and more joy cultivated in your life. Imagine what could happen, friends, that ascent could continue to tell the story of Jesus and we can continue to help people find the joy and the knowledge of encountering God. Like who doesn't wanna get in on that gig? To keep people, keep telling the story of Jesus where lives are healed, communities are restored, where generosity is just the norm because these Jesus followers have experienced the grace and the gift of God. So we look at our priorities and our percentages and we understand that it's progressive and that it's constantly growing. Now, Bill and Jackie recorded a video for us, and I want you to turn your attention to the screen for a moment and watch. Hey, Ascent. Hey, Jackie and I couldn't get out of this series without the two of us talking to you guys a little bit too. We're super thankful for Maurice and for John and our old friend Jim coming back to tackle a really tough subject. To talk about money, it's not easy because none of us are very good at it. If we were good at it, we would wanna talk about it all the time, but we're not good at budgeting. A lot of us aren't good at really understanding generosity. A lot of us aren't very good at at managing, like Jim talked about, managing instead of owning it and holding it wide open. We're not very good at it, which makes it tough to talk about, but I love it that we were able to tackle a tough subject. Jesus cared about this subject. Yeah, if we're honest, Uh, Bill and I were not great early in our marriage with budgeting and managing our money. I mean, money really did kind of own us. Truly, I mean, we, I mean, even just holding, drinking a Starbucks, we used to panic about whether or not we could afford this and how much that would affect our Christmas money if we bought a Starbucks. Let alone have anything left to to be able to give. We reached out. We had a great friend who helped us to take a look at our budget and to learn what it means to manage your money and not be owned by your money. Yeah, and she taught us a lot about generosity too and and what that means to to really be able to say this isn't ours, this is God's. And and so they taught us a ton and and we want to be able to teach a bunch of people that too. There was a lot of freedom in that. Yeah. Um, We just know that, that here at Ascent, we want to give practical ways for you to learn this too. Um, starting the first week in, in uh, November, following church on Sundays, Mo and Beth are going to take a look at Andy Stanley's book, 
if money talked and deep, dive a little bit deeper into that and give you some real practical ways to start looking at your budget. So that's one way you can do it is jump onto that for four weeks with Maurice and Beth. Jackie and I would love to meet with you. We don't, we're not experts at all in budgeting and, that, and all of that, but we needed simple first steps. We got those and we'd love to be able to give those to you. So email us and we'd love to sit down with you and tell us what we've learned over the years around this. And then, and then also, um, what was the last one that we needed? To, oh, 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 we wanted to give you a super easy on-ramp. We want to give you an on-ramp that says, how do we start giving? And so, so I told Beth, I said, man, make it as easy as possible on the website. Put, use some Batman uh, um, graphics just and just say- make it exciting. Yes, to go a $50 a month club or a $200 a month club. Just get something started because we believe that generosity breeds generosity. And if you just get started with something, things like Sister Carmen and Compassion International, other other things you start seeing, gosh, I could start to live a life of generosity. And that's the life change that we're looking for. That's the life change that Jesus is looking for. So it's a journey. We've been on a journey. We wanna be on that journey with you guys. We can do this together. We love you guys. <laughs> Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we invite you into the conversation. We invite you into this space and we ask that you would be so kind to reveal to us ways in which our heart may have developed unhealthy attachments to money. And that you would free us because we want to experience freedom. We wanna have a free heart that's open, ready to receive and ready to give out of response to your goodness and your grace. So as we sing this next song, Holy Spirit, would you slow us down and in your kindness and your gentleness, just reveal to us what's going on inside our own hearts. Thank you. <laughs>